Last week, we talked about um, the temple and the importance of that because my wife says, you know, if we're going to study Hebrews, then we better be in Hebrews. Well, we are. Yeah, it was, okay. It was more like, if you're going to study Hebrews. Now, the reason this is important is because what we've been talking about is Hebrews has been making a strong, radical, uh, I guess, approach to show that, listen, you Jews, this, this physical temple is going away because there's a new temple in town. Okay, that, that priest that's serving at the temple that you know right now, he's going away because there's a new high priest, Jesus, Yeshua. And so this whole idea of the temple Hebrews is so applicable for us today because there are still many people today who are looking for that physical temple. That's the way it was in Hebrews. And, and the author of Hebrews, who I think is probably Paul, is trying to make this strong case saying, guys, stop looking to that temple. Start looking to Yeshua. He said that in three days, you know, I'll you know tear this down in three days, I'll build it back up again. The scriptures are clear. He was the temple. Then he makes us his temple. And so it's applicable, and I think that it's a very important thing to touch because it's what Hebrews is talking about. So this is going to be the last time I'm going to talk about this stuff, but I think it's going to really fit, especially with what's going on in the world today. Um, it's just... You're not going to be able to understand this without Christ, without understanding Messiah. And you'll, you'll see as we go here. But I want to give you some history. And I think history is important as we uh, understand this topic because Emperor Hadrian, from about 132 A.D., Historians to this day are mystified by what went, went wrong here. When Hadrian came about, he was very good to the Jews, very friendly. They loved him. And somehow, it didn't make any sense, but he just turned on them. And you could literally mirror this to a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, which when our family, when we do Hanukkah, we, we learn about Antiochus Epiphanes because Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture of the Antichrist. Same exact thing happened. He was very good to the Jews when he first comes in. Now remember Alexander the Great, when he conquered, um, you know, he, he's one of the ones that Daniel talks about, that swift leopard going across. Alexander the Great, he was very good to the Jews. Well, when he died at, I think he was like 33 years old or something, when he died at that young age, his kingdom was divided up into four of his generals. One of the generals that was over Jerusalem, Judea, was uh, this guy named Antiochus. Well, he named himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. So he spoke boastfully, all that kind of thing. I mean, it is a just a mirror image of what the Antichrist would be according to scriptures. He sacrificed a pig on the altar to desecrate the temple. He killed Jews um, if they would not eat pork, if they kept the Sabbath day, if they had God's word. They were restricted from any of those kinds of things. So he changed the set times and laws, all of these things. Well, then there was this guy 
who ro rose up and rebelled against what Antiochus was doing. And his name uh, was Judah Maccabee or Judah the Hammer. And we're not going to get into too much of that outside of that basic story. Well, this is a spitting image of what happened there because um, Hadrian gave the Jews permission to rebuild the temple. That's huge. They were very excited about this because remember in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed it. So now Hadrian comes along and he says, you can rebuild it. They're excited about it. They love the guy. And like I said, it mystifies historians to this day what happened, but he turns on them. And he basically did the same thing. He waged war on the Sabbath day, would not allow them to, to honor the Sabbath anymore. He waged war on circumcision and even desecrated the temple, or, or not desecrated the temple, but desecrated what they were seeing, the, the temple mount. Okay, And so he was doing everything he could to uh, go against God and go against the, the Jewish culture. Well, just like with Antiochus Epiphanes, there was a guy who rose up to rebel against this, and his name was Simon Barcopa. And everybody was following him. There was another rabbi that was a very prominent guy of the day named Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva, now keep in mind, not Christians. This is non-Messianic rabbi. He pronounced that this Simon Barcopa was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Because he, was, he had raised this huge army up. So much so that uh, the Romans were actually quite scared. And so they're seeing Simon Barcoba as this Messiah, our Savior. He's coming to rule. He's the king, you know. And, well, that didn't last too long. What I want you to remember, last week we talked about this. There were three basic things that we talked about that that third temple is that that the book of Hebrews has been making pains to make sure you're understanding. Number one, that the third temple is heavenly, not earthly. We showed you that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Number two, that the Old Testament had to be built by the Messiah, not by man. And I showed you two rabbis last week showing you know that there were differences of opinion. Some said man was going to build it. Some said God was. But we couldn't find any scripture saying man was. Only God would show you. So, so this third temple is supposed to be built by God. And the third thing is that this temple is also in us. Why? Because the Messiah is in us. So those are three extremely important things to remember as we go through this. And without Messiah, you couldn't understand any one of those things. Without Messiah, how can there be a heavenly Jerusalem? Makes no sense. Without Messiah, you know, then I guess man could build a temple, and that's what we're expecting. And yet, as I said last week, so many Christians of today are the ones funding a new third temple on earth built by man. The very opposite of what Hebrews is screaming against. That's why this is important to look at in our discussion of Hebrews. Well, this Rabbi Akiva who pronounced Barcoba to be the Messiah, 
Why? Well, as I said, because he was liberating them. And what ends up happening is Bar Kokhba, by war, by his army that he raised up, took the Temple Mount back, and they were going to rebuild the temple. They were all excited about this. But within a three-year period, Rome raised an army three times greater than the one that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And they came in and they massacred the Jews. Massacred them. Josephus says that in 70 AD, there was about a million Jews killed. And it is said that that many, at least, were killed here in 120 AD as well, or around that time. Um, so, as a result, Rabbi Akiva um, kind of changed his mind and, and said that Bar Kokhba was no longer the Messiah, and uh, they're going to change his name to uh, something that means son of the liar instead. And we know that the devil is the father of lies. But what I want you to note is this, is when trials come, a deliverer is going to come as well. This is what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. Trials came. The Jews, at that time, we're going to say Christianity, were being uh, suppressed, oppressed, and a deliverer came, Judah Maccabee. Now, he wasn't the Messiah, and, and he wasn't being proclaimed as the Messiah. We see here, the Romans are oppressing him. So Bar Kokhba raises up, but he's pronounced as this Messiah. So when trials come, there's going to be a deliverer. This is a pattern that we see. And it's also a pattern that I think we need to be aware of more than ever in our lifetime. I kind of talked about this when I talked about Corona Part 4. Again, not saying Trump is a bad guy. I don't know that. I'm just saying this. We are on the very precipice of possible oppression as Christians. There may be a human deliverer that is going to rise up that may be viewed as the Messiah. And I'm telling you, that's not the Messiah if it is a man here on earth. Jesus warns us, and we're going to see that verse later, but he says, if someone says, there he is, or he's out there, don't go. He says, as it was, he says, it's going to be like lightning that can be seen as the east and the west. When the Son of Man comes, you're not going to have to wonder if it's the Messiah. But my point is, is there's a pattern here in history. And I see us being set up for that pattern as a possibility. I'm not making any predictions. I'm just saying, be watchful. Okay? So keep that in mind as we go. Um, anyway, like I said, it was a bloodbath. And interestingly enough, if you know any Jewish history at all, this will make sense to you. But do you know when the Romans came in and conquered Bar Kokhba? The ninth of Av. The ninth of Av throughout Jewish history is this terrible day of mourning because it's when the first temple was destroyed in seventy or in the Babylonian period. It was when the second temple was destroyed in the time of the Romans. And now Bar Kokhba, which didn't even get the third temple, but 
the Romans are coming in and destroy, you know, a, a million Jews almost. So this day is infamous in history, the ninth of Av, and you'll hear about that more. Uh, it's around August. Uh, oh, Av. I don't know. I don't know, honestly. Like Aviv is spring. I don't know if it has anything to do with that, but that seems to be the wrong time. But usually the beginning of August is around, you know, as far as our calendar, when the 9th of Av is. This year, this year, the 9th of Av was uh, July 29th through the 30th. July 29th and 30th, okay, yeah. So, anyway, um, we don't know a lot as far as what happened, so much was destroyed, but you can see some coins here. And uh, Simon Barcoba, the, the guy that was claimed to be the Messiah, he's on, you can even see the temple on the coins. We don't know how far he got, um, but after the defeat of the rabbis, um, at this time, there was a huge change in Jewish history or Jewish understanding. After this, the rabbi said that if you want to be forgiven, because, again, you have no temple, and now their hope of the temple had been destroyed. If you want to be forgiven, you need to basically give alms, do good works. It became like a very Catholic theology. And I think I've mentioned this before, but when we go to the Temple Institute in Israel, that's the question I ask the people there. If the temple is destroyed, how are you forgiven? And their answer will be these things, and that comes from this period of history, from the time of Barcoba. After that, the rabbis said, well, we've got to come up with some way to be forgiven, and they made up their own rules, basically. Okay? So, anyway, uh, let me just show you some Roman historical records talking about the destruction here under uh, Barcoba. 580,000 men were slain in various raids and battles, and the number of those that perished by famine, disease, and fire was past finding out. So that's why they say probably over a million people. Thus, nearly the whole of Judea was made desolate, a result of which the people had forewarning before the war. Note that they were warned that this was going to happen. That's what we're going to look at. For the tomb of Solomon, which the Jews regard as an object of veneration, fell to pieces of itself and collapsed. These are Roman records saying the Jews knew that there was destruction ahead because one of these venerated temples that they, you know, was like a holy site was falling apart on its own. Rocks were falling out from it, basically. Okay. It's going to make more sense why that's important coming up. So this is coming from a record here. I've got it pictured up here. It's a Roman record called Dio Cassius. All right. Anyway. Um, um, <laughs> at that time, Barcoba was then named Barcokiba, which is that son of the lie. So this forewarning, let me give you some further reference to what they're talking about from the same Roman record. It says this, For the tomb of Solomon, which the Jews regard as an object of veneration, fell to pieces of itself and collapsed, and many wolves and hyenas rushed howling into the cities. Now, I'll be honest, if I lived back there at that day, 
that wouldn't have been a warning for me at all. That would have went, oh, wolves and hyenas. But to the Jews, this was a warning. To the Romans, this was a warning. They saw it as a clear warning. And I think that's going to become more relevant as we continue here. Like I said, for me, it's wildlife. doesn't mean anything, but not to the Jew. Matthew 24, 5 says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So the Bible warns that those who don't believe in, in Jesus and Yeshua they weren't going to follow this. He's, he's warning us, don't be deceived, because there are going to be some that will deceive, and they will not understand because they do not know Messiah. Well, Hadrian, I believe, did have the spirit of Antichrist. Spoke boastfully, he did, like I said, a spitting image of Antiochus. And here comes this guy along, conquering and delivering, Simon Barcoba. And... I think they should have known that he was not the Messiah when Rabbi Akiva pronounced him Messiah by this alone, had they listened to Jesus. So, two things happened before this calamity. One, there was a move to rebuild the temple. Barcoba was ready to do it. And two, there were signs. The Romans even record them. The Jewish Talmud records other signs that happened at the time of Antiochus that uh, I'm not going to get into here now, but bottom line, they saw in the heavens chariots with swords. The Jewish Talmud records this, that there were signs in the heavens warning them. Some of the Jews, and, and, and many more, I'm not going to get into it like I said, but some of the Jews saw that as an ominous sign, like, oh, we are in trouble. And others saw it as, hey, this is a good thing. So, we're going to... It was a sign of the destruction of Jerusalem, or Antiochus Epiphanes, which could be a sign of that. But uh, the one in the, the clouds, the Talmud records all of that before the destruction of... Um, before Antiochus comes and also before the 70 AD destruction. They saw some of those signs as well. Uh, both of them saw signs with uh, chariots in heaven. Well, not necessarily, but you'll see. So we're going to jump ahead a couple hundred years. We see that the temple's destroyed in 70 AD. Simon Barcoba tries and he fails. Well, a couple hundred years later, we get to Julian the Apostate. He's called the Apostate because he is the grandson of Constantine. Now, Constantine, in the 300s, was very good to the Jews. As a matter of fact, it was the first time that Christianity had experienced peace. I mean, from around 100 AD all the way up to 300 AD, Christians, it was a tough time for Christians. There was a lot of persecution. You went through Domitian. Nero, and the Christians were definitely oppressed and persecuted. Constantine comes along and he Christianizes, 
you know, the country in a sense. Now, I'm not saying, all oh, that was a good thing, but I'm not going to get into that tonight. But bottom line is Julian did not follow in the footsteps of his uncle. And so that's why he's called the apostate. So while Constantine was good to Christianity and Christians, Julian is quite the opposite. Um, but just like the pattern that we've seen, at first, he's really nice to the Jews. He even orders the rebuilding of the temple. So they're going to get it back. And for some strange reason, again, we really don't understand what happened, but the relationship between him and the Jews changes, and the temple uh, is not built again. Instead, he orders pagan temples to be built, just like Antiochus did, just like Hadrian did, and now he's doing. Just like Matthew says, when you see the abomination which causes desolation standing in the, in the temple, okay, there's a pattern throughout history with this going on. So the building of the third temple does not happen once again. Um, history records this. This is actually a record from one of Julian's friends. He wrote this. Julian thought to rebuild at an extravagant expense the proud temple once at Jerusalem and committed this task to Olypius of Antioch. Olypius set vigorously to work, and he was seconded by governor of the province when fearful balls of fire breaking out near the foundations continued their attacks till the workmen, after repeated scorchings, could approach no more, and he gave up the attempt. You read, and guys, this isn't just one strange account. You read uh, some of the books that I brought back from Israel this last time, talking about the temple. They talk about gas explosions that went off on the Temple Mount. That's how they describe it. This is history. Now, to me, it kind of sounds like divine intervention. It almost sounds like God doesn't want a third temple built. Because it's almost like he's trying to tell us, hey, I told you about this in the book of Hebrews. That this temple is fading away. There isn't supposed to be a temple and a priest. I'm the temple. I'm the priest. One has to ask if there's a divine force preventing the third temple from happening. There has been 2,000 years and you can't get the thing built again. This is the longest that temple mount has ever been without a temple. Sure. Yeah, in the 300s. We're going to have to jump ahead to the 600s, which is the next slide. So from 300s to the 600s, no. There was no opportunities again. So 300 years, no temple. Well, in 614, the Sasanian Empire, basically the Persian Empire, took over the Temple Mount. Now, they were able to do this because the Jews 
had ulterior motives, but they came in and they helped fight along the Persian army. And they took back Jerusalem. And as a thank you, the Persian Empire said, <clears throat> you're going to be able to build a temple here. But that relationship also breaks down before anything can happen. Even though they had helped you know, drive out the Byzantines from Jerusalem. So, once more, what seems to be an open door is closed quickly. Now we're going to jump ahead from 600s. There is nothing until 1967. There is not an opportunity to build the temple again. 1967, what we call the Six-Day War. We have Mordecai Gur here. Sometimes he's just called Madagur. Uh, Mordecai Gur was the general, and they came in and they were able to capture the Temple Mount. Again, huge. Everybody is excited. He radios over the radio. The Temple Mount is in our hands. They're cheering. They're excited. And they go and they stick a flag up on the mountain, an Israeli flag on the Temple Mount. It's the first thing that they do. Like I said, I can't even put in words how big of a deal this is. Well, he places that flag there, and the defense minister, Moisha Dayane, he's over there, and he's looking through binoculars, and he sees this flag go up. And so he radios back to Mordecai, and he says, do you want to set the Middle East on fire? And he tells him, get that flag down now. And this was such a, a devastating blow to Mordecai, he couldn't even do it himself. He was in tears. He, even though he was head, he had to have somebody else take it down because he couldn't bring himself to do it. It hurt him that much. But immediately after stacking, uh, putting it up, they take the flag down and they basically give the Temple Mount back. Well, John 4, verse 20 says this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is speaking here. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where you ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. In other words, he was taking the focus off of the Holy Mount. Mount Zion, and putting it on himself, saying that you're going to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't go worship there. He's not saying that, but he's trying to take the focus off of the physical into the spiritual. The very thing the book of Hebrews is doing. The very thing that the church, at least many Christians, seem to be trying to build back up. So, the temple is the context of what he's talking about here. He goes on in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and truth. Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. 
how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house, your temple, is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till, that's a very important word, till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, some of you went to Israel here with us. Let me just get your opinion before I give you mine. When you went to the Temple Mount, what did it feel like? Yet, what? Not the Wailing Wall. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's creepy to me. No, the mosque is up above. Well, did I say Temple Mount? I meant Wailing Wall. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. okay, now wait a minute. Okay. Change my answer. Okay, Wailing Wall. Yeah. Well, there's no empty. empty. Yeah, yeah. What? Empty? I mean, that may not be the answer for everybody. Bizarre? <laughs> empty, bizarre, creepy. That's the thing. Here's the thing, guys. Every picture you see of Jerusalem, what do you see? You either see the Dome of the Rocks, but you see the Wailing Wall. This is supposed to be one of the greatest, grandest, most spiritual places that you can go today. And, oh, you, we want to go pray next to the Western Wall. And you go there, and it's like, well, this is disappointing. It's actually really creepy and weird because you got all these guys doing things that are all, you know, wrapping up, binding their arms and flat trees and waiting, you know, and some of them that look like demon possessed that we saw there, you know. It, it, it's, it's not good. Yeah, yeah, it's just not right. Well, I don't think that's an accident. Jesus said, I'm going to leave you this place desolate. This is not a spiritual thing. But for Christianity, it is. It's a desolation from the Spirit of God. These people don't know Yeshua as their Savior. There's even unclean animals, cats running around all over the place on what they would see, you know, their, their temple area. So, It isn't. No, this you'll never going to hear this in a church, probably. No. But that was the whole point that we were never supposed to. I mean, walk yeah. <laughs> yep. Your eyes are to be on on Jesus, not this holy relic. I love this part where I said pointed out till Jesus is saying until the Jew invites him back. Nothing's going to change. He's not going to allow his presence in them until they recognize him as their Messiah. When is that be? I think it's going to be soon. How is it going to be? How's, I Zachariah says this, they will look on him, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child or a firstborn son. He says in Scripture he is going to gather them, even right here, but not until. Not until you repent and you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the Messiah. Now keep in mind, 
Solomon is a, a, a picture of Christ. He is a Christ figure. And we see that Solomon was anointed twice. And that's rare, actually never, outside of that we see there in Solomon. But Solomon being Christ figure, Jesus is going to be anointed twice too. His first coming and his second coming. But anyway, what I want you to know, the whole reason I've taken you through this historical journey is to show you that these guys were warned. There were, for lack of a better word, harbingers that were taking place before destruction and judgment came. Today, should we expect it to be any different? That God is not going to give us harbingers and warnings? What do you mean by harbingers? Warnings. warnings. I would say for the most part. The point being is even what we see here is he's telling us that there are going to be signs, and I guess in the verse before here, that there are going to be signs and there are going to be wonders in the heaven. There will be harbingers happening. It's been not only the MO of history, it's also what Scripture tells us is going to happen. Keep that in mind as we now kind of change gears a little bit. Today we have been seeing all kinds of earthquakes taking place in Jerusalem. Um, I think that you can go throughout all of history, we've seen that there have been earthquakes that are there. And so this in of itself, I probably wouldn't read too much into. However, we do see that the Jews are reading into it. Okay? Um, we have just some headlines. 5.4 magnitude earthquake hits Red Sea rattling Elat. Small earthquake felt in southern Israel. Uh, this is just, you know, in 2020. Uh, small earthquake shakes northern Israel. No reports of injuries or, or damage. Uh, here we see in Haaretz, just the land. Israel is hundreds of years overdue for a massive earthquake. They're waiting for this huge one. Anyway, like I said, by itself to me, I wouldn't think anything of it. But that's not how the Jews are seeing it. July 24, 2018, there was a woman praying at the Western Wall that we just talked about, this great holy site. And a 220-pound rock came crashing down, just missed her. Watch the video of it here. You can see her just right there. Here it is in slow motion. Here it comes. 220 pounds. Now, in and of itself, I say, hey, it's 2,000 years old. You know, older. But that's not how the Jews see this. 
Remember what happened with uh, Emperor Hadrian? One of the signs that the Romans say is one of their venerated sites, the site of Solomon, was starting to fall apart on its own. And this is what we see happening here. So for a Jew, the Orthodox Jews, this is a sign to them. Again, to me, I would probably just say, oh, hey, it's getting old. But that's not how they see it. There's a snake that's also there. Um, one of the articles here that uh, was written about this, this is also at the end of 2018, it says, how symbolic that this snake should appear at the place that is the heart of the Jewish people where so many Jews were killed at a time when Jews are still being killed. We have received a symbolic warning from these holy stones out of the Temple Mount. Look at this snake here. Again, to me, I would say wildlife. You'll see it in a second. It's kind of coming out there. But let me tell you, you don't see those things on the Temple Mount. There are people everywhere around that you just don't see it. So to the Jews, this is a huge sign. I want to take you here and show you some more uh, from this article, what they said about this. Yeah, November of 2018. It says the Zohar, the basis of Jewish mysticism, which basically I don't, I don't agree with, but anyway, they explain that the evil inclination personified by the snake in Eden will make a resurgent in the days before Messiah. Tempted to come and drink sustenance from the enormous levels of holiness that will appear in the world in the end of days. It was noted in Sod 1820 that the snake appeared in the woman's prayer section, emphasizing its relevance to women. In Genesis, it is described how Eve was tempted into sin by the snake. Okay, Again, I don't support Zohar. I'm not trying to say any of that. That's Jewish mysticism. What I'm saying is they're seeing this as a sign. Likewise, remember the woman's uh, quarters is where the rock fell out of the wailing wall as well. So it might seem silly, but we still have to ask, does history repeat itself? Let me take you to Josephus, a rather long quote here, but let me just show you what Josephus says in regards to before the 70 AD destruction. I kind of mentioned some of it, but we'll give you some idea here. Thus were the miserable people persuaded by these deceivers and such as belied God himself, while they did not attend nor give credit to the signs that were so evident and did so plainly foretell their future desolation. Thus there was a star resembling a sword which stood over the city and a comet that continued a whole year. So he's saying that there were these signs and some people didn't take any you know, they just thought, oh, well, it's just a star. And others are saying this is a sign. But some said it was a good sign. Some say it's a bad sign, as you'll see. At the ninth hour of the night, so great a light shone round the altar in the holy house that it appeared to be bright daytime, 
which lasted for half an hour. This light seemed to be, be a good sign to the unskillful, but was so interpreted by the sacred scribes as to pretend those events that followed immediately upon it. Destruction. At the same festival also a heifer, as she was led by the high priest to be sacrificed, brought forth a lamb in the midst of the temple. Moreover, the eastern gate of the inner court of the temple, which was of brass and vastly heavy, and had been with difficulty shut by twenty men, was seen to be opened on its own accord about the sixth hour of the night. This also appeared to the vulgar to be a very happy prodigy, a good sign, as if the God did thereby open them the gates of happiness. But the men of learning understood it that the security of their holy house was dissolved of its own accord. Destruction was coming. This is about the 70 AD destruction and written as recorded by Josephus the historian. To a lamb, yeah. I mean, radical things here. Even, you know, light shining for a half hour as if it was daytime around the, the altar. Besides these, a few days after that feast, on the one and the 20th, 20th day of the month, Artemisius, a certain prodigious, prodigious and in, incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it and were not the events that followed it of so considerable of a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sun setting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds, surrounding of the cities. Moreover, at that feast, which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard a sound as of great multitude saying, let us remove hence. But what is still more terrible, there was one Jesus, the son of Ananias, okay, different, not Messiah, began on a sudden to cry aloud, a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the holy house, a voice against the bridegrooms and the brides, and a voice against this whole people. This was his cry as he went about by day and by night. However, certain of the most eminent took up the man and gave him a great number of severe stripes, but still went on with the same words which he cried before. So as they're whipping him, he doesn't change inflection. He just keeps saying the exact same thing. Hereupon our ruler, supposing as the case proved to be that this was sort of a divine fury in the man, he was insane, brought him to the Roman procurator where he was whipped till his bones were laid bare, yet he did not make any supplication for himself nor shed any tears, but turning his voice to the most lamentable tone possible at every stroke of the whip, his answer was, Woe, woe to Jerusalem. This cry of his was the loudest at the festivals, and he continued this ditty for seven years and five months without growing hoarse. I'm just reading history to you, okay? Interesting. Before the destruction. Yep. couple more signs here. 
Here are some articles. These are just Jewish headlines. Fox has seen near Temple Mount stark reminder of destruction. Biblical prophecy. Many rabbis see this as a good sign. Others see it as a bad sign. Same thing that we saw Josephus saying. And by the way, remember I was mentioning those that war going on in heaven in the clouds? Same thing happened, and we have historical records of that before Antiochus comes. The other article here says, Foxes seen at the Temple Mount seen as prophetic proof Jerusalem is returning to former glory. So here you see some saying this is a bad, it's a reminder of destruction. Some saying, oh, this is going to restore us to the former glory. Here's what it says inside. I, I had some video of it too, but the foxes were just running around on the up on the, the walls and everything there. It says, it was reported in the yeshiva world that visitors to the area have observed a group of about a dozen foxes in the southwestern area of the western wall for the last three days in the early hours of the day. Wild foxes at the site of the destroyed temple are described specifically in the Jewish Talmud. This Talmud, which was written 2,000 years ago as a sign that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, this precise scenario was discussed in the Talmud and by all these other rabbis, uh, and Rabbi Akiva went up to Jerusalem. When they reached the Temple Mount, they saw a fox emerging from the place of the Holy of Holies. You know, in essence, remember Rabbi Akiva who pronounces Bar Kokhba as the Messiah? When they were coming up there, they saw a fox coming out and they saw that as a good sign. Now, 2,000 years later almost, we're seeing this and they're going, whoa. And I'm like, in 2,000 years we haven't had foxes on the Temple Mount? But apparently not. says, the others started weeping, but Rabbi Akiva laughed. Rabbi Akiva asked the rabbis why they cried, and they explained that to see a wild animal in such a holy place, a place which was forbidden to unfit men, was distressing. Rabbi Akiva noted that this was precisely the reason he laughed. He explained that the fact that the prophecy of Uriah related by the prophetic Micah had come to be was proof that the prophecy of Zechariah would also come to be. I know that means nothing to you, but I'll make it clear. The prophet Micah described the total destruction of Jerusalem. Assuredly, because of you, Zion, shall be plowed as a field, and Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, shall become heaps of ruins. Micah 3.12 the prophet Zechariah described the return of Jerusalem to its days of glory. Thus said the Lord of hosts, There shall yet be old men and women in the squares of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age, and the squares of the city shall be crowded with boys and girls playing in the squares. So Micah seems to be saying Jerusalem's going to be plowed as a field. Zechariah is saying, it's going to be, you know, kids playing around. And so this is kind of what these rabbis do a lot. They take these obscure verses, and rabbi says, no, he says, if one's going to happen, that means the other's going to happen. This is a good thing. So weird, but my point that I wanted you to see is here's a guy saying, you, you've got both sides of the, the coin there. Joel 2.12, though, says this, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. 
Song of Solomon says, Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Bottom line is God's calling for repentance. Nowhere in Scripture do we see foxes as being a good thing. I think that we should be praying, as Joel says, not laughing, as Rabbi Akiva says. And there are rabbis today that are just like Rabbi Akiva who see these as good things, but there's a lot that are seeing them as bad things. It depends on which rabbi you followed. Ezekiel 13, verse 3 says, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets are like foxes in the deserts. Jesus said, Go to Herod, that fox. So like I said, nowhere do we ever see in Scripture foxes being a good thing. Now, all of this, and just to repeat myself again, I wouldn't see these as signs. But the fact that the Jewish rabbis are seeing them as signs is interesting to me. Noah and I were talking earlier today that I do believe God still speaks to the Jews, even the Orthodox that don't know him yet, because he wants them to know him. They're not going to get to heaven without recognizing Yeshua as, as Messiah. But God is patient, and he has said that they will come back in the end times. And throughout history, we have seen, if you ever read the Talmud, you'll see God was clearly speaking to them, trying to woo them to him, and time and time again, they reject him. There are some that don't. But I still believe, just as he has throughout all of history, without question, that he is doing that today. I'm going to close out here uh, just showing you some out of the headlines here. This is from August 3rd. Okay, just a couple of weeks back here, three weeks, four weeks, maybe, something like that. Israeli rabbi says he's already holding meetings with Messiah. Now, I don't know, those of you who are with us in Israel, our guide told us outright, a lot of these Orthodox Jews, many people believe that they're secret messianic. Right? They think that Netanyahu is a secret messianic. That there are a lot of Jews in Israel who believe that Yeshua is Messiah, but they can't come out and say so publicly. Remember, our guide's father gave him a New Testament to read, but never said a word about it. And he always wondered, why did he give me this New Testament? And you saw the message that he sent us here recently, just how everybody, you know, we're crazy. Some thinks he needs to be committed because he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, I want to read what some of this, it might be hard to see, but it says this. A recent interview on Israeli radio, again, featured prominent rabbis explaining that the Messiah is just about to reveal himself. And it goes on, I'm just going to kind of, I highlighted some things here in blue. Rabbi Chaim Konevsky, probably slaughtering the name, is considered one of the two or three top rabbis of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in Israel. So we're not talking about just, you know, your, your rabbi down the street. These guys are like our 
James Dobson or John MacArthur. Okay. And it goes on next. It says the process of redemption is about to start happening very quickly and at a fast pace. It is important that people remain calm and steady to act properly in the right time. Getting the word out now that the Messiah is closer than ever is a matter of life and death. Haven't you heard of Gog and Magog? That's what's going to happen very soon. Right now, the situation is explosive more than you can possibly imagine. Everyone needs to know whether they are on the inside or if they are going to be left out. He went on to reiterate a number of signs of which prominent rabbis have taken note and they firmly believe to be evidence of the coming Messiah. Rabbi Dove Cook, which in other presentations I've done, I've referenced him. Again, well-notable guy. I mean, he's high up. Who, as everyone knows, is a very righteous man. He is one of the greatest men of our generation. And ten years ago, when Israel was suffering from a horrible drought, someone asked Rabbi Cook when the Sea of Galilee will again be full. Recounted Rabbi Jesholtz. Rabbi Cook responded that when the Messiah arrives, the Sea of Galilee will be full. In a few weeks, the Sea of Galilee will be full for the first time since Rabbi Cook made this statement. Decades ago, Rabbi Kaduri of the modern Israel's most uh, revered, one of modern Israel's most revered sages, as well as Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Snearson, uh, both predicted that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu would be the state of Israel's last prime minister prior to the Messianic age. A great many, if not most, of the ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel continued to believe that to be true. This one here, top rabbis, look at signs. Messiah is coming. Rabbi Shlomo Amar, the former Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel, told a gathering earlier this month that the list of significant signs over the past year simply cannot be ignored. Some of them here, Israel seems unable to elect a government. Second thing, U.S. President Trump, the most powerful leader in the world, has, like King Cyrus, endorsed Jewish sovereignty in the promised land. Three, the kings of the world come up to Jerusalem last month to honor the Jewish people. These are things we never dreamed of, exclaimed Rabbi Amar. How can these things be if not as preparation for the coming of the Messiah? Rabbi Amar went on to say, All the great rabbis of this generation are saying that the Messiah is about to reveal himself. All the signs the prophets gave, all the signs predicted in the Gemara, the Mishnah, and the Midrash, which, by the way, is the Talmud. The Talmud is the Bible. But within the Bible, you've got a commentary on the Bible, and then you have a commentary on the commentary of the Bible. Okay? That's the Talmud. And he's saying, one by one, all we need is to remain strong for a little bit longer. He then urged Jews everywhere to commit themselves to Torah observance, in particular keeping the Shabbat. Orthodox Judaism has long taught that the Messiah will only come once all Jews are sanctifying the Shabbat. It is notable how closely Rabbi Amar's exhortation echoes that of Yeshua. 
Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for this master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Luke 12. And it goes on, he likewise believes that what has happened here over the past year is most definitely a sign of the coming of Messiah. It would be advisable at this time to study Torah and pray. Study God's word and pray. Now again, I don't agree with everything the, the Orthodox Jews believe, obviously, because I believe in Yeshua. But I also wonder if some of these top guys don't know that Yeshua is the Messiah. A few years back, there was a Messiah, or a, a, a rabbi, and I don't remember all the details, and I should have looked it up, but it's just kind of coming to my mind now again, that he was told who the Messiah was. He had a vision, and he was told who he was, and he wrote it on a paper, and he it was not allowed to be revealed until he died. And he died just not very many years ago. I was asking Ron about this, and, and basically it was read and he pronounced Yeshua as the Messiah. All I know is this. Christians here are not the only ones that are saying something is going on. This is a worldwide phenomenon, even among the Orthodox Jews. And what I'd like you to take home, beyond the point of that, yes, Hebrews is telling us, listen, he's the temple, not this earthly thing but also that it's very easy for us to get focused on the politics or maybe even a dream. The dream isn't the important part. The important part is the Messiah is coming back. That's what we fix our eyes on. We should be excited. We should be not scared, not fearful, but excited that Jesus is coming back. Maybe all of us are, are wrong. I, I, I've never seen a time in history when so many people are believing the Lord's coming back. Saying the same thing. Saying the same thing. But maybe we're wrong. Maybe we've got another 150 years. We are to be watchmen on the wall. And then the blood be on their heads if they don't. Blood be on our hands if we don't tell them. And that's why all the more, because... We should believe that the Lord is coming back. Our job is to be going out and telling them, repent of your sins, call on the name of Yeshua and be saved. But fix your eyes on him. There is an urgency going on and it should be driving us to prayer. It should be driving us to be in studying God's word. Not just Saturday, Sunday, but I mean as much as possible. This is what these rabbis are even telling them. Messiah is coming. And I think he is. And I do believe many of them will be saved. Like I said, I think some of them really believe Yeshua is that Messiah. Because we've already seen that. God is speaking to them. And he said he's going to. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, he's going to be reaching out to them. He's going to be giving them signs. I would not recognize any of those signs. But... I think it's relevant that they do. You'd be amazed at how many Jews don't even know what's in the New Testament. 
They don't have a clue what's in there. They've heard about this Jesus guy. Uh, they've heard about, yeah, but that's it. They, they don't know the stories. Uh, matter of fact, we had a, a professor at Concordia Seward. Uh, her name was Lynn Soloway. And one of her students appealed to her intellect, just brilliant, said, hey, I don't understand this. I, would you help me? Would you read this and tell me? She went home and she said she started reading this and she couldn't put, it was a New Testament, she couldn't put it down. She said, I skipped, I was supposed to have some meeting or something, and she skipped it that evening. She read the entire thing, stayed up all night reading. And she called her mom and dad and she said, how come you didn't tell me that there was more, that there was more to this story? This is not unusual. It's just like our guide. He would have not known about it had his dad not given him a New Testament. In Israel, they don't evangelize. You know, technically, it's kind of against the law to evangelize. They only know that they believe this Jesus thing and that that's a false Messiah, but they don't know the details of the New Testament. Pretty much, yeah. You, you've heard of Allah. You, you know that they've got 70 virgins, you know, but you don't know all the details. You know? So I'm going to close in this verse, Zechariah 14.1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Zechariah is saying that there's a disaster that lies ahead for Jerusalem, that it's going to be divided. Well, Scripture talks about that, and we know that in some of the plans that are out there, the UN clearly wants to divide Israel. You go read Zechariah 14. This is future. So he's saying that Jerusalem will be divided. Now he also says those who divide my land are going to be punished. So uh, I would not want to be on the side of the ones who divide Israel. The fact that the Orthodox even want to rebuild the temple in itself to me is scary. But when this prophecy comes true, what are they going to rely on? Their iron dome? Or is it possible that they're going to be calling on their Messiah? That they'll be calling on Yeshua? If so, remember what Matthew said. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think that's what's going to happen. When Jerusalem is divided and when bad things start happening, I don't think they're going to rely on their iron dome. I think a lot of them are going to come out and recognize Jesus was the one. We missed him. They're going to weep. They're going to mourn. They're going to cry out to him. And he's going to bring deliverance. So, anyway, for us, in the meantime, be encouraged that the Lord is coming back. This is what Christianity has been about for the last 2,000 years. If we're wrong, and he doesn't come for another 150 years, what did you miss out on? Nothing. You were expecting Glory, you were excited to see Jesus. And when you die, you get to see him. If you're right, you're going to be even better prepared. But my point is, is don't get sucked in to the negative of what's going on or may go on very soon in our country. Keep your eyes on the fact that he's coming. That's 
the best message that I think anybody can give us. All right, well, let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, um, you told us there in your word, you, you end your word saying, I am coming soon, I am coming soon. Father, we pray that. You've told us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Even that means to pray for your coming because there will be no peace until you return. And so, Father, we pray for our Jewish brothers. We pray that they would come to know you as the Messiah. We pray for those who, uh, as, as Deb said here tonight, Lord, that we, we share and they don't want to hear. They don't listen. They don't believe. Open their eyes. Bring them to repentance and give us opportunities to share your love with others. Lord, move us. Let's not keep this good news to ourselves, but let us go and be empowered and emboldened to go and share that you're coming back. We may not know the day or the hour, but Lord, you tell us we know the season. You're not going to come like a thief in the night to the, to the believer. That's for the unbeliever. So Lord, um, give us opportunity. Give us a heart for the lost. Give us an urgency that we would not be ashamed to stand up for you even if they think we're crazy, but that your word would go forth and not come back void. In the name of Yeshua, Jesus, we pray. Amen.